I think I'm gonna open this episode with, you gotta get it! I'm Elisa, and I'm the owner of Another Read Through. I'm Mary, and I've worked at the store for six months. Something like that, right? But I've been selling books probably half my life. And what kind of books do you normally like to read? Good ones. <laughs> I gravitate more towards nonfiction. I think the nonfiction lately, they're really interesting to me. They read like novels. Sometimes they read like whodunit mysteries. I find them fascinating. I like books about things that seem ordinary, but are really extraordinary. We're not here to talk about this today, but I actually, there's been a shift in the last maybe 10 or so years. I think John Krakauer and Eric Larson are largely responsible for the way nonfiction has changed because both of those authors write nonfiction that reads like fiction. I think that now readers are looking for that more in their nonfiction as opposed to, it used to be a lot drier. I mean, it was still interesting maybe, but if you were into the subject, it might not have been something that you would want to read. Is that what, why the book that you recommended that I read is a nonfiction book? Yeah, that was the big selling point for me. I'm holding it right now. It's called The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. It's a really beautiful book. It is actually about the sound of a wild snail eating. And what's amazing is if you go to her website, you can hear a snail eat a carrot and then you can hear her eat the carrot and it's a lot louder with the snail because they have like 2,000 teeth and people normally only have 32. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that. I think her snail had 2,640 teeth or something like that. She probably counted them because she had this virus, which I don't know exactly what it was, but it really knocked her for a loop. Basically, the premise of the story is she gets this virus and she's bedridden and a friend of hers brings her terrarium and it has a little snail on it. She then spends the next few months watching the snail, which sounds boring, but it's completely fascinating. This book came to me at exactly the right time. I don't read quickly, but my slow reading is not an intentional thing. It's just I don't read fast. But this book was a really good reminder for me to slow down. And I've mm -hmm. been picking that up from the world lately anyway. And I just, it's a really nice reminder to, to slow down, to notice the little things. I thought it was beautiful. I loved this book. The whole premise, everything is just perfect about this book. It feels good in your hands. There's little illustrations of snails on the page. You can kind of make them run across, run, because snails <laughs> do that. But it's just fascinating. I had no idea that snails were as interesting as they are or that there are so many species of snails and that they're everywhere. Everywhere. And microscopic even. <laughs> it's just an unbelievable book and it, it kind of spoke to me as well because as a kid I was like a junior Jacques Cousteau, Marlon Perkins kind of person but living in a big city that I did but I didn't really have a lot of chance to be with wild animals. I started a snail farm when I was a child. I started out with four snails. Probably ended up with thousands. And needless to say, my mom, who was a big gardener, was not happy with me. And everything kind of went haywire. And let's just say the snail farm disappeared. Overnight? Pretty much. It was kind of a silence of the lambs kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you have a terrarium in the same way that this author did? Yeah, they were free range. What's fascinating is afterwards I read this short story about a snail that was huge, a bunch of snails that were huge, that went stalking after a man on an island. And she mentions this in the book. Exactly. <laughs> 
as I was reading the book, I was like, God, I remember when I was, you know, eight or 10, I read this crazy story after I had my snail farm that has haunted me for my whole life. And what I didn't realize, it was Patricia Highsmith, who I have claimed I've never read, but obviously I have. And I mean, it might explain my affinity for Silence of the Lambs. At least I hope that's what it, why I like that movie. But uh, it's just an unbelievable, beautiful book. I don't even know if she's written anything else. I haven't looked either. I don't even care. I think she's one of my favorite <laughs> authors. And you know, the crazy thing too is last night when I was like, oh, I should probably figure out what I may or may not say today. I looked on my Goodreads and I wrote, so beautiful. I didn't want it to end. November 14th, 10.08 p.m. My husband had a stroke the next day. Oh my goodness. And I found out around eight o'clock the next day. So this you was finished the this right before last book I read before my husband had a stroke. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. I know that books speak to different parts of you at different times of your life. But for me, a lot of this book also was really about her illness. She wasn't just bedridden for over a year. I mean, it was decades of this virus. She describes a passage where she wanted to change the scenery because all she's doing is looking straight at the ceiling all day long or she's on her side and looking at the terrarium all day long. And she describes in three, four sentences how to get a different view for the day. She turns from one side to the other. Minutes for her heart to come back down to normal. It's racing. She almost passed out just from turning in the bed. So it's more than bedridden. It's really incapacitated in so yes. many ways, except not at all mentally. Right. To read that and then the next day yes. have Scott. Wow. Yeah. I couldn't believe when I read that last night. I didn't know whether or not to tell Scott. And then I finally decided I would. And he was just like, well, no wonder you like that book. But I liked it before. And it was funny. I just saw it sitting on a table at a, a bookstore. Huh. And I was like, oh, this is my book. This is a Mary book. And it is. It's fantastic. And I'm so glad that you liked it because I wasn't. I've recommended it to so many people already and I only just finished it a week ago. It's fascinating. You will love snails. It might appear to be a book for somebody who already knows about snails or who cares about snails, but it's really, it's not. It's a book for anybody. I feel like the beauty of it is it makes you love snails. Now I'm going to look at them in a completely different light. I mean, I always loved anything with a shell or anything with a house on their back. That just fascinated me as a child to have something so contained. I always thought that snails, like a hermit crab, grow from house to house as they get bigger. But I learned in this book, they actually grow their house And you as can they count the rings. Yeah. Kind of like redwood tree or maybe like if you turn a turtle over, you can count their rings. Can Paul. you? Yes. Those, so you turn them over. Stick with me. I'll, I'll teach you all about my animals. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll say since, since this is on the radio, it's a really slim book. It's small. It's how many pages, Mary? Like 180 something. It, it's really short. 190. And yet somehow, I mean, I, I learned all this stuff about snails and about the phyla and all of it without it being textbooky at all. It was all very interesting. She just sort of weaved in the information. I had no idea how fascinating snails yeah. were or could be. And so I learned all this stuff without it being at all overwhelming or feeling like I was in a lecture. And still with the parallel of her story, I feel like somehow this book is tiny and slim and almost like pocket size, but full. It's just so full of information and tranquility and knowledge and passion. It's just beautiful. It kind of reminds me of the woman who wrote Seabiscuit, although she didn't put her story in the book about Seabiscuit, mm -hmm. but Seabiscuit was a book that was super popular, mm -hmm. which of course I refuse to read because I don't read popular books. They must be horrible. <laughs> they usually aren't. And I finally picked up that book and learned of her story. And she has Bar Epstein, I 
think. Or chronic fatigue. Mm-hmm. Some some disease like that where she was bedridden and she wrote Sea Biscuit flat on her back in her bed. And even though she didn't intertwine the story, mm-hmm. I find it fascinating that she wrote this fascinating book about a horse. But it wasn't just about a horse. It was right. about everything else going on. And I mean, any, any book that's any good is not just about one thing, right? Good point. I highly, highly recommend this book to anybody. I agree. Who, especially somebody who wants to slow down a little bit, as you pointed out. Yeah. That was a really great thing to say because you kind of read it as a, at a snail's pace. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't normally read fiction, but I recommended a fiction book to you. You did. What's funny to me, before you started to work here, you were a customer for a long time. Right. And I don't know that I, I knew that you prefer nonfiction to fiction. I think that most of what you were buying here was fiction, and so I didn't realize that about you. I have a book problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been probably good for you, but <laughs> not so much for my bank account. But I, I do read fiction, but for some reason, I think because of the, what you talked about, the whole trend in the interesting nonfiction happening, that I've been drawn to that. But if a fiction book is really, really good, I enjoy it. And the book that you recommended to me was really, really good. I'm glad you liked it. And it's called The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I'd like to just interject about this go for it that I know that there's a Netflix show now that's inspired by it's it's not an adaptation of I've loved this book long before the Netflix show came out that's true I believe I recommended it to you in fact we were going to do this podcast a while ago and so you read this book a bit ago now before the Netflix show came out anyway yeah a few months ago and I've been recommending it ever since I read it it's an easy book to recommend I think because everybody has some sort of knowledge of it and this is even before the Netflix because there was that amazing movie that came out in the 60s, which I watched with my sister. And it was probably the only time we really got along because we decided to sleep together that night because we were so frightened by that movie. (laughs) It's a black and white movie. It's unbelievably beautiful, incredibly scary and fantastic. And then there was another movie that came out, I don't know, in the 90s or early 2000s. That's the worst movie of all. I've never seen any adaptation of this book. I recommend the early one. So I've heard from for people who love the book, I've heard that the 60s movie is actually really good and worth watching. I don't tend to watch adaptations of books that I love. It just makes me usually angry. (laughs) But that one I I think I might watch one day because I've heard such good things about it. I've also feel like I'd be willing to watch the Netflix version because it's it's not an adaptation. It's just an inspiration or inspired by, which I think I'm glad they say that because it's so different from what I've heard. I really enjoy the category of book that is the protagonist going crazy or is there something in the environment that she or he is actually responding rationally to that makes them appear to be going crazy. I love books that question that, Mm -hmm. question people's sanity and question the sanity of the world in that way. And this book for me is the best example of that kind of story. It was so fascinating because it's written so straightforward. Mm -hmm. It's very simple language. It doesn't try to trick you with fancy words, which is good for me. (laughs) However, it does exactly what you just said. Is this really happening? Is it not happening? Because almost every spooky thing that happens, she's the one who sees it except for the one time where she's with Theo and they supposedly see this technicolor picnic that was happening at night and then Theo turns around and says, run. But you don't know what Theo saw. She even might have been just telling her to run because maybe she was afraid of Theo losing her mind. I have no idea. So you think it's simple, but it's not. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. There's, in my opinion, about this book, actually, you can trace every, I'm going to use the word manifestation because that's the word that they use for what, if the house is manifesting or mm -hmm. not, but you can trace every manifestation to be either something supernatural or something in Eleanor's head. Mm -hmm. And it's brilliant. I think that being able to interpret it in either way is one of the coolest things about this book. I've read it multiple times and every time I read it, I've had a totally different interpretation of what's happening. And in my opinion, all of those interpretations are fully backed up by the text and exactly what she intended. Right. So, to make the reader maybe feel like they're going as crazy as Eleanor was, or if or Eleanor, as Shirley Jackson was, because she had some issues with mental illness as well. I think brought on by all the children. <laughs> <laughs> What I also love, which I noticed when I was kind of re-looking at this book, is the humor. When you're introduced to Eleanor, which is basically the main character, and this is her first, like, you meet her. This is one of my favorite passages in all of literature. Oh my god, it's so great. Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, <laughs> was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. This was owing largely to the 11 years she had spent caring for her invalid mother, which had left her with some proficiency as a nurse and an inability to face strong sunlight without blinking. She hates a five-year-old. I mean, that's hilarious to me. <laughs> that passage for me is the start of what I think is one of the, truly one of the best chapters. And it's only, I don't know, three pages, five pages in all of, of literature to set up an introduction of a character, plant every seed that you need for the rest of the book, give you insight into who she is and why she might think the way she thinks and set you on this path with her that you're willing to go. A couple of stars that comes up in that, in that chapter, everything that happens in the next like whatever it is seven eight pages for me it's one of the best character studies in in literature and that opening paragraph is my favorite i love it so much you really explained it really well because i also love where she's having the argument with her sister about taking the car and her sister keeps calling it her car and she keeps arguing half mine half my car <laughs> if that was on a sitcom everybody would say oh my god give it an emmy it's so brilliant and it's stuck in this gothic novel that just has all these twists and turns. It's such a great book. I mean, this book came out 1959. It could have been published yesterday. The language and the content, everything about it holds up 100%. I think what keeps it really fresh is you don't exactly know where it is. Mm. So you can't quite think about like if it's in, you know, say Northern California, you would start, at least for me, I would start thinking about how much that region has changed mm. or what it is like now or what it was. Or But here you just have no idea. So you're kind of put into this area without having any preconceived notion where you are. And that, for me, lets you really follow the characters mm -hmm. and figure out where they are and discover new things. It's probably about as sci-fi as I can get because <laughs> I can't get over other worlds, which is so silly because I think it shows a lacking of my own character that I can't get. <laughs> but for me, this is just like, okay, I'm thrown into this world. I don't know where it is. I don't know where she's going. And I just want to take that ride and see where we end up. What I also love about the book is that there's four, probably five main characters and the house being the fifth character and maybe the most overreaching character of all. I mean, the way that she describes the house is unbelievable. It's spooky as hell. But once again, you're not quite sure if the house is as creepy as you think it is because it's Eleanor talking about the house. That's my other favorite thing in, in literature is unreliable narrators or even better narrators that you can't as a reader 
be sure if they're reliable or not. I just think that that's so true to life <laughs> and fascinating. And, and so often a book is told through one person's eyes and you're just assuming as a reader that what you're being told is accurate. I love when authors mess with that assumption. Mm -hmm. In this book, we don't get anyone else's ideas or opinions or know what they've experienced at all. And the book wouldn't be any good if we did, but I so desperately want to know what, what Theo saw. I want to know all of it. I'm, I'm so curious about what happened to everybody else, but if we were told that, it would ruin the book entirely. Another uh, group of characters I find fascinating are the caretakers. Mm, They're so amazingly horrible. <laughs> They're just rude and weird but cook really good food so they're good at their job yeah. and when she first comes to Hill House the caretaker won't let her in even though you would think you would know all about this but it just reminds me of our lives today where you can't just ask somebody something because we're almost told that we can't think that we only have a set of rules that we have to follow and so there's no give and take so it's just like it just reminds me anytime I'm trying to like get through the maze of the medical profession or you know try to call some company online and I can't get through because you have this gatekeeper mm -hmm. and he's kind of the gatekeeper of the world now in a weird way uh -huh. but at least his wife can cook well you know we don't, we don't get a good dinner once we get off the phone with like Delta Airlines or something you know I don't even know why they're putting in there except for I love it I just like okay I kind of want to spin off and see where this grumpy American gothic couple go and what they do. Mrs. Montague too. I need to see oh more about God. her. She's perfect. She's so perfect. Unbelievable. I think one of the many, many strengths of this book is I mean, there, there aren't that many characters. There's not really, if you were to plot it out, a ton of things that happen. No. But everything that does is so perfectly drawn. These characters that only play a role for a few pages. I mean, Mrs. Montague is one of the most perfect side characters for sure in all of literature, I think. I found her way more interesting than her husband. Oh, certainly. I mean, he's not he's not meant to be interesting. He's true. <laughs> well, the women were way more interesting than the men. I think that in general, that was Shirley Jackson's, one of the things that she, I don't know a lot about her or a lot about her other writing but I believe that she wrote interesting women in general that was part of what she was doing thing about this book too is that it has made me want to go and read her other books and I haven't done it yet but I feel like as you said it's going to be leading me to another cast of really interesting women I read The Bell Jar for the first time just the other night oh wow uh, and I don't know how I've been on this earth without reading that book especially being the little angsty 20 year old that I <laughs> still think I am it was so amazing so fantastic and it kind of reminded me a little bit of The Haunting of Hill House I think just because interesting women mm -hmm. and unreliable characters. You don't know exactly what she's going through, if it's real or not. A little bit of madness. One good thing about this book that you had told me right from the beginning is if anybody reads this book, in which you all should read both these books, if there's an introduction to the book, do not read it before you read the book. Read it afterwards because it's one of those things where it tells you the whole story, which is fine. But as far as I'm concerned, the thing that always bugged me about when I 
I took English literature classes, is that we would talk about the plot before we finished the book. What I love about books is discovering it on my own. And then I want to go back and talk about it and find out all the symbolism. But I just hate that it tells you exactly what happens. And if you haven't seen the 1960s movie, you don't know what's going to happen. So read the book first, intro second. Yeah, the intro should be at the back. afterward. The thing that surprised me, I think, the first time I read this book, so I read it, I want to say, three times now. And I had only ever read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson before I read this book. And I loved The Lottery. I think it was seventh grade that we read it right. in class. Which is interesting that they have us read The Lottery. It's still like the most assigned short story in at least American classes. It was the most controversial story that The New Yorker ever put out. And people responded wildly to that story when it came out. A lot of canceled subscriptions. Some people loved it. But it didn't get quite the positive response that it gets now. So I'd never read anything by her except for that story and that was <clears throat> decades ago <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I read this. Like you, I will read everything. I haven't yet, like you, but I will read everything that she has ever written based purely on this book, which I understand is not even her best work. Right. We've Always Lived in the Castle is supposed to be the highlight of her career. I was really just impressed, like you said, with the simplicity of her language. I feel like almost anybody could read it. I mean, I think young teenagers, anyone would be able, this is totally accessible to anybody. And I don't typically read like haunted house stories. That's not my thing. I don't read them either. And still, this was... Although I have to admit, the first time I read it, I did not interpret it at all as a haunted house story. Which is hilarious to me, because it's considered one of the best horror stories of all time. Yeah, I didn't think it was scary at all the first time I read it. What makes it scary for me is whether or not she's crazy. Yeah. Which is such a... I mean, especially in this day and time where we have people who are crazy running the world, it just scares you to your core. It doesn't even matter that there may or may not be a haunted house that takes people's souls. It's the fact that somebody has no idea what reality is. That's just so poignant in this day and maybe days that, when I wake up. <laughs> and maybe, that, maybe that's one of the reasons that it holds so well through the years, right? Because there's always something going on that makes right. you feel like the world is going crazy or you're going crazy or other people are going crazy. And, and so maybe that's part of what ties this book to every moment in history almost, right? That this is a perfect book to read now and it's a perfect book to read five years ago and it's a perfect book to read in five. You know, it always works for it whatever's happening in, yeah, in the world. I also like at the beginning when she finally gets her car, half car, and she steals it and she takes off and it all of a sudden becomes like a road story. Like, I mean, you know, that's part of that chapter that I think is perfect. It's, and it's just so great. And there's hope. She finally has a little bit of hope. Her hated mother is dead. She's away from her hated sister and her disliked brother-in-law and horrible five-year-old niece. And she's hit the open road in such a typical American fashion. It's the first time she ever had freedom. At all. Completely. Then it ends up at this house and then it spirals from there. <laughs> we won't say. Or does exactly it? what happens. But <laughs> it's a little bit hard to talk about this book without giving too much away. It's just a really good book and I really appreciate that you encouraged me to read it. I worked in a bookstore since my 20s. I've picked up this book a zillion times. Had you? Yeah, picked it up and went, oh, I saw the movie. Oh, I don't like to be scared. But between you and the New York Times book review, there's been so many people in that one page where they interview people and mm. they say, you know, your favorite books or what's on your bedside table. And this book is almost mentioned once 
a month at least. Really? Yes. It's become back into fashion. I don't know if it's because of the miniseries, but like Stephen King says it's probably the best horror book ever written. And then other people that you wouldn't think would read horror books are saying, oh my goodness, it's the best book. It's the best book. As you said, it's timeless. You don't know when it was written. There's no slang. There's no real description of the car she's even driving. Mm -hmm. There's just... I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, there really isn't, is there? The description is of the house. They're closed at one point. That does give a little bit away just because there's a point where she's being a little bit risque by wearing pants. Right. Instead of a skirt. That's one of the, maybe the only thing that gives you any kind of point in time at all. Right. Everything else really could happen at any time. Because it's a place that's away from the world, it makes perfect sense without even real explanation that it's a place away from technology. So you you would just assume going into that house that you couldn't have a computer and a cell phone. They wouldn't work there. Right. They wouldn't. (laughs) So. I mean, half the town didn't even know where the house was. Right. Dr. Montague gives her explicit instructions. Yeah. Pretty much not to talk to anybody in the town either, which was interesting. Did he actually even tell her that? We don't know. Although he might have because he was trying to, he wanted to be all scientific. You said about Stephen King. I, I think that's where I first heard about this book. So I don't read Haunted House Stories. It's not my thing, but I do read Stephen King. I think he's wonderful. I think he dedicated Salem's Lot to Shirley Jackson. Really? I think so, if I remember correctly. Um, because of this book and he does mention it a lot when you ask him about his influences and who he thinks writes really well in the genre and who he wants to emulate this comes up a lot and I'm pretty sure that's how I first even heard about it he makes excellent recommendations across all genres he reads it seems like he reads everything poetry you cannot expect that of someone who writes the way he does there's not a lot to do in Maine (laughs) (laughs) that's why he writes so prolifically (laughs) is it? I'm glad that we were doing this and it made you finally not just pick up the book Haunting of Hill House but actually have to open it and read it and I had never heard of The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating and I have to say even if I had heard of it I probably would not have picked it up and I'm so glad that I read this this worked out really nicely I think for me personally (laughs) you know the funny thing these two books seem like they're totally far apart but they actually aren't I think when you have a book that's good even though it's different than other good books there's a reason it's good the language in both these books are amazing and simple Mm -hmm. but yet very complex and makes you think and makes you slow down a little bit and take the time to enjoy every sentence and every word they're just two books that i think both of us wouldn't have picked up on our own and yet we did it and we read them and we loved them and now i'm recommending them both to everybody oh my gosh like i said i usually put them in customers hands and say you gotta get this and this sometimes works <laughs> it works a lot i don't know what they do afterwards they probably try to come and give them back at least they get out the door in somebody's hands and somebody's probably gonna read them no they're beautiful everyone should read these books another read through is a queer owned independent bookstore in portland oregon our mission is to keep portland reading and support queer and local authors we host many events every month including author readings panel discussions and book clubs Check us out at anotherreadthrough.com or on North Mississippi Avenue starting every day at 11 a.m. Follow us on Twitter at Another Read or on Instagram at Another Read Through. This episode was produced by me, Cal Spivey. Our theme music is by Zach Anger. Links and book lists are in the episode description. Happy reading! <laughs>